President Biden signs a government funding bill averting a shutdown for now, but setting up two budget deadlines for the new year. It's Friday, November 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, an interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas and criticism coming from his own citizens. Also this hour, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders pushing the new head of the National Institutes of Health to use the agency's leverage to help lower drug prices. Despite the huge amount of money that taxpayers spend developing these drugs, The drug companies get the product, and they end up charging us the highest prices in the world for it. Plus, we preview this weekend's election in Argentina. Partly sunny skies today, temperatures in the 60s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israel's military says it has recovered the bodies of two of the roughly 240 hostages abducted by Hamas and taken to Gaza. One of them was an Israeli soldier whose body was seen in a video released Monday by Hamas. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports her body was recovered as Israeli forces remain in Gaza's largest hospital. The military said they found the body of 19-year-old Corporal Noah Marciano, who was serving at a base near the Gaza Strip when it was overrun on October 7th. Israeli military operations continued in the Gaza Strip overnight, with airstrikes against what Israel said were weapons storage sites and ground battles between Israeli forces and Hamas militants. The UN says some 2,700 people, including 1,500 children, remain missing, believed to be buried under rubble. Separately, Israel's National Security Council will take up legislation imposing a mandatory death penalty for convicted terrorists. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. President Biden is spending his last day in San Francisco attending an Asian Pacific Economic Summit. He'll meet Mexico's president today. Last night, Biden hosted a dinner for the leaders of the other countries and toasted the future success of their relationships. Together, we can harness the power of the Pacific to grow our economies, to uplift our workers, to protect our planet, to connect our people to one another and the future of greater prosperity and dignity for all. The highlight of the week was Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the summit. Both leaders agreed to resume communication between the militaries of the U.S. and China. President Biden has also signed a short-term government spending bill. It averts a potential government shutdown this weekend, but it also sets up two new government shutdown deadlines. One is in January, the other is in February. A federal judge in Kentucky has declared a mistrial in the federal criminal case against former Louisville police detective Brett Hankinson. He faced civil rights violation charges for his actions during the deadly 2020 raid on Breonna Taylor's apartment. From Louisville Public Media, Roberta Roldan has more. Speaking to reporters outside the courtroom, the attorney for Breonna Taylor's family, Lanita Baker, said Taylor's mother was disappointed. Tamika Palmer sat in the courtroom at multiple points during the three-week trial. Of course, uh, Ms. Palmer was disappointed, but still encouraged because, you know, a mistrial is not an acquittal, and so we live another day to fight for justice for Breonna. Baker said federal prosecutors told the family they plan to try Hankison again on charges he used excessive force and violated the rights of Taylor and her boyfriend. Earlier in the day, jurors said they were at an impasse. The judge said court security had been alerted to loud voices coming from the jury room as they deliberated. For NPR News, I'm Roberto Roldan in Louisville. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA says it needs more than $24 billion to get all of its infrastructure up to speed. That includes trains, tracks, signals, and other equipment, but not an expansion of the system. This comes as a new poll finds that Massachusetts residents are not convinced that elected leaders are doing enough to improve the T. The Mass Inc. poll gives Governor Healy and the legislature mixed grades for handling transportation issues. The group's research director, Rich Parr, says the frustrations are likely driven by long-standing issues on the T and frequent traffic. People are not giving the current administration or the legislature a pass here, even though there's a lot of these problems that have been going on for a long time. I think it suggests that people want to see more done. Now, we don't know whether that means that they'd be willing to pay extra money to pay for that fix. The poll surveyed 1,300 Massachusetts residents last month. The campaign to legalize the use of plant-based psychedelic substances in Massachusetts is at risk of not making it onto next year's ballot. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, state officials say they found several disqualifying marks on ballot papers. Advocates want to legalize the use of psychedelics in therapy and allow people to grow things like psilocybin mushrooms at home. Two weeks ago, organizers said they'd gathered the nearly 75,000 signatures needed to qualify for next year's ballot. But that's now up in the air after several activists spotted a labor union logo printed on the ballot sheets. Any non-approved markings would disqualify the entire page of signatures. It's unclear how many signatures are at risk. Organizers are now back to signature gathering and say they're, quote, confident they'll gather enough before a key deadline next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Brookline is a step closer to implementing rent control, a measure to limit annual rent increases to 3% a year plus inflation, was approved at last night's town meeting. The Boston Globe reports that the town select board will now petition state lawmakers to allow the proposal to take effect. An investigation finds that Seekins Manufacturing in Newburyport could have prevented a fatal explosion. The explosion in May killed one worker. The investigation from the U.S. Labor Department found the company did not properly handle hazardous chemicals. The company will need to pay nearly $300,000 in penalties. Harvard's American Repertory Theater will officially find a new home in Alston. The Boston Planning and Development Agency has approved a proposal to move the theater as part of the university's Enterprise Research Campus. The ART's new home will include two performance venues, rehearsal studios, and teaching spaces. The facility is expected to open in 2026. It's seven minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Celtics will be in Toronto tonight to play the Raptors, and it should be partly sunny today. Highs in the 60s. A few clouds tonight with lows in the 50s. Looks like rain tomorrow with highs in the 50s, but sunshine on Sunday and temperatures again in the 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Benjamin Netanyahu joins us next. He is Prime Minister of Israel, a job that he held on October 7th when Hamas attacked, and a job that he holds now as Israel responds in Gaza. Prime Minister, welcome back to the program. 
Good to be with you, Steve. I want to begin by asking about Al-Shifa Hospital. The Israeli military has said they needed to seize that giant hospital complex in Gaza because a major command center for Hamas was underground. And I'll note that reporters on the ground have now been taken by the Israeli military to see some kind of staircase going down, but not what is inside. Have you, in fact, found an underground command center? Yes, we found uh, more than that. Uh, This is not a hospital you know. It was commandeered by Hamas. There were plenty of uh, terrorist chieftains, a lot of terrorists there. They fled as our forces uh, approached the hospitals, and happily we didn't have to have a firefight with anyone. But we found there a lot of weapons, a lot. We found a lot of ammunition. We found bombs. We found on level minus two a command and control center of Hamas with military encoded uh, encryption. Uh, We found a terror tunnel in the compound, uh, and that, uh, that's the staircase you're talking about. Can I just ask, uh, I Prime Minister, sure. I've, I've heard you say on another interview about this level minus two command center. Will you take reporters mm-hmm. to see that or send the military to take reporters yeah, to see that? I think we've already published uh, uh, photos of it. It's there. Believe me, it's a command center. Uh, and it's not an IC, uh, 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 what do you call it, an intensive care unit. I mean, that's what it is. It's a military compound. That is for, I mean, this is a commandeered hospital. It's not uh, Mount Sinai, and it's not uh, any one of the hospitals that you're familiar with or that I'm familiar with. It was taken over by Hamas, and now it's, we've taken over it. Uh, we've brought in, as we moved in, we brought Arabic-speaking doctors. Mm-hmm. We've brought incubators for babies. Uh, so this is, uh, I think, the uh, the most humane takeover of a hospital commandeered by terrorists in history. Well, what, uh, and that's the whole point here, Steve. I, I think this is the main point. Israel is giving safe corridors and safe zones for civilians, and Hamas terrorists are using hospitals uh, in order to shield themselves behind patients. It's insane. Well, we'll continue so watching for be, the evidence coming out of that area if, if we can. Hamas should be condemned. Our, yeah, our time is limited, Prime Minister. I yeah. want to ask about the future. But my, my passion is unlimited. Understood. My passion is unlimited for justice and for truth. Understand. And to place blame on Israel that is fighting these animals, these monsters who, who mutilated babies, who beheaded women, who raped uh, and murdered uh, women, who, who, who burned people alive. I mean, this is, this is just sheer folly. I mean, it's sheer evil. It has to be fought. And that's why I'm speaking to you with such passion. Such understand. Conviction. Understand. Prime Minister, I want to ask about the future. Colin Powell, once Secretary of State of the United States, famously said to President George W. Bush of Iraq before the invasion there, you break it, you own it. What do you intend to do with Gaza once Israeli troops are fully in control on the ground there? We have two um, main goals there. One is to uh, prevent uh, prevent things, uh, this threat from emerging. For that, we need to demilitarize Gaza. And the second thing we have to do is de-radicalize Gaza. It's like, what do you do when you, you beat the Nazi regime? Uh, well, you... Uh, Make sure that uh, Germany is not, doesn't arm itself again. And you also make sure that Nazism is uh, removed. Same thing you did in the victory against Japan. You know, you, you won the victory, but you then also made sure that there was a cultural change in Japan. We need a cultural change uh, in any civilian administration in Gaza. It can't be committed to... Uh, funding terrorism and has to be committed to fighting terrorism. When you say any civilian administration, Prime Minister, that seems to be the question. You've said you don't want the Palestinian Authority running Gaza, which would be the other major Palestinian organization other than Hamas. You don't want them running Gaza. Who else is there? Well, first of all, anyone who doesn't share Hamas's goals and who doesn't share Hamas's inculcation. 
uh, of uh, teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be destroyed, uh, and that's their goal in life. I mean, that's what the the Palestinian Authority is doing in the West Bank. It's teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be annihilated. They pay for slay. They pay the families of terrorists. Uh, for the murder of Jews, and the more Jews they murder, the more they get paid. This is not the people who can uh, work for peace. And you know, almost 40 days have passed, and the Palestinian leadership of uh, of the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas, has yet to condemn the savagery. The I want worst to ask savagery Prime Minister, perpetrated you, on Jews since the you, Holocaust. You talked so about these what... are the people. Are, are we going to put these people in Gaza and tell them, "Oh, we entrust a future of peace with you"? That's not going to work. Well, let's ask about that because you talk about what children are taught. Israeli forces in the last few weeks have killed children, parents, and siblings, and other loved ones by the thousands in Gaza. And you say it was to get at Hamas that the civilian casualties were not intentional but they're real and by the thousands. How do you expect to make peace with people who have had their loved ones killed? I think that any civilian death and any the death of any child is a tragedy. And we're doing everything we can to minimize that. But uh, Hamas is committing a double war crime. You know, it's both targeting our civilians, murdering them, mutilating them, but also hiding uh, behind civilians as human shields. Now, what would you do? Well, in fact, you can ask what you did. But what do you because, do now is my question. How do you well, make peace with them now? Well, let, 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 me, let me show you how you did peace with people in, in which you had to act in, in many ways the way we did and, and actually beyond what we did. Uh, the, the, uh, the Chancellor of Germany visited Israel. He called Hamas after he saw the atrocities, the new Nazis. What did, what did you do with the Nazis? Hitler invaded Europe, committed the horrible uh, crimes, the worst crimes in history. Uh, the Allies invaded Normandy, went through uh, the cities of France and Germany. The German army implanted itself like Hamas in the cities, in civilian neighborhoods, in hospitals, you name it. Uh, it didn't stop you from acting. You had to act. You tried to minimize civilian casualties, but many, unfortunately, many civilians were killed. Now, I think history would have taken a different course, a totally different course, if at the time public opinion was geared against the Allies instead of being geared against the Understood, Nazis. but the question, of course, is the United States ended up keeping troops in Germany for generations. That's where you're heading here with, with Gaza? Well, I'm not sure of keeping troops inside. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's not particularly necessary. Gaza is very small. So the overriding military responsibility has to be with Israel for the foreseeable future. Because once you eliminate Hamas, and we have to eliminate Hamas, we have to beat these barbarians, otherwise this evil will spread. And it is uh, a great danger to everyone. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. And right now, the only force that is able to, uh, to secure that is Israel. So for the foreseeable future, Israeli overall military responsibility. But there also has to be a civilian government there. But and you, but you haven't said who that civilian government would be, sir. Well, I think I know who it can't be. It can't okay. be people who are committed to I wanna, if uh, funding I... terrorism and, and inculcating terrorism. Let, let me say this, though. Very briefly, sir. That you had, you had this, we, we can give Gaza a different future. You say, how will this generation have a different future? Just the way the German people had a different future, the Japanese people had a different future, because you eliminated these toxic regimes, these tyrannies, these heartless monstrosities, and you replace them with something good. And what we need is something that is, we replace that with something that cares for the future of peace between Israel and the Palestinians, that cares to rebuild Gaza, 
that cares to eliminate this terrorist tyranny that uh, subjugated the people of Gaza. I think that's the only hope for peace and the only hope for Palestinians. Prime Minister, I've been talking, and we have been talking with Israelis for weeks, ever since the October 7th attack. Some of them support you and your course. I want you to hear two Israeli voters who do not. One of them is Margalit Zur. She is the grandmother of an Israeli soldier. Let's listen. I don't trust the government. I don't trust Bibi, first of all. For me, he thinks only of himself. For a year, he has worked for himself, for his own personal interests. And when I was in Israel, Prime Minister, I met Eliyahu Merami, who is a Tel Aviv taxi driver, who says he had always voted for your party, Likud. Let's listen. But after what happened on the 7th of October, I don't know what to think about anyone from the government, from the army, from the intelligence. I don't know what to say. How, how things like this can happen, I don't trust anyone anymore. Nothing, really. What do you say, Prime Minister, to those Israelis whose faith in you was destroyed? Well, I can say that Israel is united today as never before. And my government is united. I called in a significant part of the opposition that heeded my call. We formed a unity government. My whole cabinet is united. And we're committed to doing three things, destroying Hamas, uh, <coughs> sorry, destroying Hamas, returning our hostages, and uh, assuring a different future in Gaza, different from okay. the one that we had before. Right. And I think About on this, seconds. the country is united. Uh, of course, the different disparate voices, there are voices of disappointment. How could it not be after such a savagery? That's understandable. But right now, the main thing, Steve, is that the country is, is really... Uh, uh, really powerfully united. And, you know, I can find audios of many who support okay. and who are committed to And we have heard people who idea. said that as well. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, thank you very much for your time, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Tel Aviv and has been listening in. Greg Myrie, did you hear clarity there about Israel's long-term plans in Gaza? No, really, we didn't, Steve. I mean, the key phrase there was when the prime minister said, for the foreseeable future, Israel will have overall military responsibility. And again, very, very vague about what they're going to do. And I think there's a very real risk that when this Israeli military operation ends, whenever that may be, Israel could effectively find itself stuck in Gaza, uh, wanting to get out, knowing it can't rule over two million Palestinians there. But uh, not really have anyone to take over. Um, as we heard, uh, he does not want Hamas to rule again. Uh, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is not prepared. So it really is not clear how Israel will will sort this out uh, and, and come up with some sort of political so solution once the fighting ends. Okay, thanks very much. That's NPR's Greg Myrie talking about Benjamin Netanyahu, who just gave an interview to NPR News, one of many voices we hear. This is NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us. Coming up on Morning Edition, is the city of Las Vegas becoming a sports hub? It's 19 minutes past 7. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit. Playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. And Uncommon Feasts. 
offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, gather around. Let's feast. I'm Robin Young. Larry was an asylum seeker from Venezuela. Joe worked with asylum seekers. Now they're Larry and Joe, bridging divides with what they call Latin grass, traditional Venezuelan rhythms, and Appalachian bluegrass. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies expected today with temperatures in the 60s. A few clouds tonight, lows in the 50s. And looks like rain on Saturday, sunshine on Sunday, though. Temperatures both weekend days in the 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Radiolab is coming to City Space Friday, December 8th for an immersive multimedia event exploring the history of cassette tapes and how they change the world. You can get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From the Cy Sims Foundation, Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at scisimsfoundation.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Latin Grammys took place last night, and for the first time, the ceremony was held outside the United States. They crossed the Atlantic and settled in Seville, Spain, from where reporter Miguel Macias joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. It's great to be with you. Likewise. Okay, so before we talk about the awards, I want to ask you, what's up with this cross-continental move? Yeah, well, Spain has a long history of involvement with the Latin Grammys, Artists like uh, Alejandro Sanz, Enrique Iglesias, Mala Rodriguez, the list goes on. And some musical lines have been blurred recently by artists like Rosalia, who borrows from all kinds of Latinx musical traditions. So it kind of makes sense for the awards to come here in a way. But nearly $30 million from local government offices don't hurt either. Oh, so they, so they paid for this? Oh yeah, with the promise that there would be a big return on investment. Seville is a big tourist destination, and the Latin Grammys are a huge platform for a city like this. Now, there has been plenty of criticism from the Latinx community. The ongoing controversy is whether Spain should be a part of the Latin Grammys at all. So for many, this was like adding insult to injury. Hmm. Let's talk about the big winners of the night. Yes. So Shakira and Bizarrap opened the evening with the best pop song for that global hit with the strange title, Music Sessions Volume 53. And later in the ceremony, they also took Song of the Year. So let's hear some of that track. That is a hit. No, I mean, no doubt. That is a hit. So, yeah. yeah. It's all over the place. Yeah, yes. it is all over the place. Hard to argue. And Natalia Lafourcade was another winner. The Mexican songwriter who already has many Latin Grammys and Grammys took the Cabaret Record of the Year for the Todas Las Flores. She won a total of three awards yesterday, so a big night for her. Reímos, 
En las calles de Madrid borrachos fuimos sin un rumbo fijo. And finally, the biggest prize album of the year, it went to Carol G, the Colombian reggaeton star, who also took the Latin Grammy for Best Urban Album. An album titled Mañana Será Bonito that Carol G said changed her life. I'm sure there were plenty of performances, and were there any that, you know, made a big impression? Yeah, I mean, this felt more like a concert than an awards show. Let's see, I'll say that I was quite underwhelmed by Shakira's two performances. Okay, hold up now. Um, you're trying to get some hate mail here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming. But uh, Laura Pausini took the Person of the Year award and she performed the medley. She's just pure energy and passion. And then Raul Alejandro with Juanes on guitar kicked some butt with the rock-inspired performance. Uh, let's take a listen. You know, I gotta say, those collaborations are always what, to me, make the Grammys and the Latin Grammys. Yeah, so, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Yes, that's true. Fair, fair, fair. Okay, taking all of this together, was this cross-Atlantic move a success? Does it seem like this was a good move for the Latin Grammys? It looks like it. I mean, it's hard to know. Uh, Seville's a really welcoming city, truly beautiful, and the city really embraced its role. But Michelle, I want to leave you with some thoughts with Nuria Ned, the music critic and founder of La Cotelera Music, who was in town for the awards. He told me that Latin music has not just crossed the border, it has gone beyond. Well, it's amazing to be in Spain where really Latin music is youth culture. And I think young people in Spain, they listen to Bad Bunny, they listen to Raúl Alejandro. For them, Latin music is youth culture, it is their culture. Latin music is mainstream indeed. Latin music is youth culture. It now belongs to the people. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you, Michelle. That's Miguel Macias talking about the Latin Grammys. Can the National Institutes of Health reduce drug prices? Now, though it doesn't approve new medicines or pay for them, some say the agency's role in drug research can give it surprising leverage. Here's NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin. Senator Bernie Sanders, chairman of the powerful Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, voted against confirmation of Dr. Monica Bertinoli as NIH director this month. Sanders said he didn't think Bertinoli was prepared to stand up to the pharmaceutical industry, but he says he plans to work with her anyway, and they've agreed to meet in the near future. He says something has to change at the NIH, which spends billions on biomedical research each year. And yet, despite the huge amount of money that taxpayers spend developing these drugs, the drug companies get the product and they end up charging us the highest prices in the world for it. He cited the Moderna COVID vaccine as an example. The vaccine was developed with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, part of the NIH. And the government agreed to buy 100 million doses, even if it failed clinical trials and wasn't authorized by the FDA. Amit Sarbatwari of Harvard says the government could have made more use of its leverage as a funder. That could have been to ensure reasonable pricing for Americans, at the very least ensuring that Americans aren't paying more 
than people in other countries. Moderna increased the price of its shot this year from about $26 a dose to $130 a dose. The company has downplayed NIH's role. Generally, the pharmaceutical industry discounts the importance of NIH research funding in its work, but Sarpatwari says the NIH is actually the largest single funder of biomedical research in the world. A lot could be built into funding contracts to protect Americans. It's quite possible to put in terms that will ensure fair access to the fruit of all of that support. He says the NIH has been hesitant to flex its muscles on pricing and access. Sanders hopes that will change and that the agency will be less cozy with the pharmaceutical industry. He asked the administration last month to investigate the NIH's moves toward granting an exclusive patent license for a cervical cancer drug developed at the NIH to a mysterious startup. The startup, Scarlet TCR, has a relationship with a former NIH employee, and the deal could allow the company to one day charge high prices for a government invention. The NIH says no decision has been made regarding Scarlet TCR. The agency says it is committed to making sure the benefits of its taxpayer work are affordable and that Bertinoli will work with Congress. Sydney Lupkin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up next here on WBUR and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition in Guatemala. Prosecutors move against the country's president-elect as the slow-motion coup that he predicted begins to pick up pace. If you're making a holiday road trip, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live. Tap on to the WBUR app to rewind shows, play them back, hear them live, download the app for free before you hit the road. It's 730. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales. Investing in relationships based on trust, collaboration, and shared values with nonprofit organizations and community partners, such as Eastie Farm, Zumix, and East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, serving East Boston's diverse needs and vibrant culture. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his forces found a large network of Hamas tunnels and vast amounts of weapons when they moved into the largest hospital in Gaza, the Al-Shifa complex. This is not a hospital you know. It was commandeered by Hamas. There were plenty of uh, terrorist chieftains, a lot of terrorists there. They fled as our forces uh, approached the hospitals, and happily we didn't have to have a firefight with anyone. But we found there a lot of weapons, a lot. We found a lot of ammunition. We found bombs. The Israeli prime minister was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition about the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. A jury in California has convicted David DePap on federal charges stemming from his attack on the husband of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. That happened at the couple's home in San Francisco. DePap broke into the house in October of last year and attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer. He was seriously injured. Nancy Pelosi was not at home at the time. U.S. Attorney Ishmael Ramsey spoke to reporters about the guilty verdict. What this guilty verdict on all counts sends is a clear message that regardless of what your beliefs are, what you cannot do is physically attack a member of Congress or their immediate family 
for their performance in their job. DePap could spend decades in prison. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Tomorrow marks two decades since Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtill has more on the anniversary. Hillary Goodridge and her then-fiancé, Julie Goodridge, were the lead plaintiffs in the case that led to the 2003 landmark ruling. It laid the groundwork for national marriage equality years later. Hillary is reflecting on everything that's happened since the anniversary, including her own marriage and divorce. She's also thinking about both the strides and setbacks the nation has made for LGBTQ plus equality. I believe that movements for justice will continue to go forward. And and every tear, you know, every dollar, every sleepless night we had was worth it. Hillary says she'll be toasting with friends tomorrow night. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Later this month, the T will shut down the Green Line extension early to make track repairs. The tracks were built too close together. The problems were made public less than a year after opening the line to Somerville and Medford. The T says buses will replace trains at 8.45 p.m. each night between November 27th and December 10th. A center that combines health care screenings, housing and employment assistance, a food pantry and test kitchen is opening in Chelsea. The Survival Center, run by La Collaborativa, has funding from Mass General Brigham. Dr. Elsie Tavares says the center will help reduce health disparities. Where we're headed very specifically with this partnership is reducing premature mortality and reducing the inequities in chronic diseases that we see in the community. In a survey done last year, 42 percent of Chelsea residents described their health as fair or poor. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby. Closing soon. Learn more at PEM.org. The Celtics will try to extend their four-game winning streak when they visit Toronto tonight, and it should be partly sunny today. Highs in the 60s. Tomorrow, some rain, maybe a wintry mix in the morning. Temperatures getting into the 50s later in the day tomorrow. Sunshine on Sunday with highs in the 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. R&B singer Cassie Ventura is making some explosive accusations against one of the most prominent men in the music industry. In a civil suit filed on Thursday, Ventura accused Sean Diddy Combs of sexual assault, trafficking, and more. In a statement through his attorney, Combs has denied the allegations. NPR music correspondent Sidney Madden is here with us to tell us more about this. And here's where we're going to let you know that this conversation will include descriptions of sexual assault. With that being said, Sydney, good morning. Good morning. So first, would you just remind us of why Sean Combs is so important in the music industry? 
Absolutely. Sean Combs, who's gone by many monikers over the years, from Puff Daddy to P. Diddy to Diddy, he is one of the most recognizable figures, not only in hip-hop, but in popular music. As the founder of Bad Boy Entertainment in the early 90s, he's credited with making the label a powerhouse and changing the, the sound and energy of 90s hip-hop. He managed the careers of the Notorious B.I.G., Foxy Brown, Mace, and even in the R&B space, acts like Carl Thomas. And he played a big role in ushering hip hop's era of high sheen, ultra luxe, ultra, ultra capitalistic opulence. So you think million dollar budget videos, sure. multi-platinum records, okay. Hampton White parties, stuff like that. Got it, got it. So he's, he's, a, he's a big name. He's like a big force in the culture, sort of Huge broadly. So, so how did he meet Ventura? Combs and Ventura met when she signed to Bad Boy in about 2004, 2005, when her current label partnered with Bad Boy Entertainment for the release of her debut album. Um, and from the time she signed with Bad Boy at 19 years old, the suit alleges that's where their romantic partnership began, but also that's where the pattern of control, manipulation, and abuse started. Mm -hmm. So really the entirety of their romantic relationship and her music career. Okay, so they ended their relationship in 2018. In her lawsuit, she thanked the New York Adult Survivors Act for helping her come forward. What's the significance of that? The New York Survivors Act, um, which passed just last year in 2022, it opens up a one-year window that allows adult survivors whose statutes of limitations might have expired on these allegations of abuse. It allows them the ability to file a civil suit against the accused offender, but it's very a very specific window. The window of opportunity to file is between November 2022 to November 2024. So it was right up against the deadline when she filed. So this isn't the first time that somebody, a big figure in entertainment, you know, in hip hop or in entertainment more broadly, has been accused of sexual misconduct. I mean, nobody can forget Harvey Weinstein, of course. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that makes this lawsuit different? I think... One aspect that makes this lawsuit different is the stature of the accused. As, as I said, Diddy is a huge presence in hip hop from the late 90s up until now. The power he holds in hip hop currently is insurmountable to a lot of the other um, people who've been accused. Uh, he's, not a, he's not a legacy name, he's a very active voice. Um, he's at every Met Gala, every Rock Nation brunch, every Grammy celebration. He's one of hip hop's few billionaires. That type of power and presence is what this this case is up against. All right, that is NPR music correspondent Sydney Madden. Sydney, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. In February, Las Vegas will host the biggest single-day sporting event in the world, the Super Bowl. This is a big departure from how things used to be. Less than a decade ago, America's professional sports leagues wouldn't touch Vegas due to its gambling industry. Now the NFL, NHL, and WNBA all have teams in the city. Just yesterday, Major League Baseball approved the Oakland A's relocation there. And this weekend, Vegas is hosting the Formula One Grand Prix. So what's behind Sin City's recent streak of sports luck? Las Vegas Review Journal sports business reporter Mick Akers has a bet. Let's start off with this weekend's F1 race. How big of a deal is this event for the city? Yeah, you know, it's shaping up to be one of the, the biggest weekends in Las Vegas history. Obviously, 
long history of hosting major events. This was probably going to be just, you know, the top one there until we get to the Super Bowl here in a few months. So, you know, expecting about 100,000 people or so to populate all of the spectator zones across the Strip. And they're projecting over a billion dollars in revenue going to be generated, you know, over these next few days. So obviously it's going to be one of the most major uh, events and weekends in Las Vegas history. How excited was the city to, to land this event? You know, it was a lot of work in the back end. Um, it's been about a couple of years since, you know, some of the rumors started and uh, the Clark County Commission finally, you know, and the Las Vegas Visitors and Convention Authority nailed it down. They got it down right now for a three-year deal right now and then uh, potential for 10 years with Clark County. So, um, you know, once they got it, they locked it into a multi-year deal and, you know, they're kind of, you know, clamoring at the, at, at the hand right now, just kind of waiting for this weekend to, to kick off here. Las Vegas has really grown up sports-wise in the last few years. Uh, the NHL's there, the WNBA, the NFL has the Raiders there, and the Oakland A's might be next. Why has Vegas become such a, a sought-after destination for pro sports teams? You know, it's just always been a dream for the city. You know, the pro sports gambling, uh, you know, it's kept a lot of the leagues away. But, you know, once that became legalized and now you're seeing sports betting, you know, kind of spread out across the nation now, it made it feasible to have a team here. So NHL came in and then the Raiders came in with NFL and we have WNBA. It was always there. The demand is just it wasn't possible for a while. So once that door opened, the floodgates opened and, you know, all these teams started coming here. And uh, I would say within the next seven to 10 years, we'll have all four major sports leagues here. And that's all that's all it took, right? I mean, that that Supreme Court decision in 2018 that legalized sports betting, that was the the trigger, so to speak, to just have a, a flood of professional leagues want to want to go to Las Vegas. It just seems like why couldn't they do that before? Yeah, just a lot of concerns about the sports betting angle, obviously. Um, they didn't want people betting on their own teams and doing such. Once that passed in 2018, uh, it seems like there were some back-end deals already going on because some of those announcements came out pretty quickly, you know, with the Knights. And then you had the Raiders saying, hey, we might want to look at relocation. But now, you know, ever since then, it's just been a major thing. How do local residents feel about all this, especially considering that some of their taxes go toward the construction of some of these uh, arenas and ballparks and stadiums? Yeah, I would say, you know, they're, at first, a lot of them were kind of turned off with that. But then we look at the Raiders deal, it's $750 million in public money that's paid for by a room tax on rooms, mainly on the strip, mainly paid for by tourists. So anyone that comes to town is paying that when they, you know, they purchase their hotel room. So for the most part on that one, people look like, hey, you know, it's tax money, but it's not us paying it. So they kind of, you know, looked at that a little different light after they kind of got the full gist of it. With the A's, they're looking at a mix of, a tax financing district around the stadium and then they're going to have some you know tax breaks through the state it's going to total about 380 million dollars in uh, public money for the 1.5 billion dollar stadium they're looking to build out there so that one's a little bit different but for the most part everyone's like hey we want all these pro sports and you know the more the merrier so uh, you know bring on the a's and eventually bring on the nba as well mick Akers is a sports business reporter for the las vegas review journal mick thanks hey thanks a lot This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. Coming up on Morning Edition, we'll have a conversation with a member of the Council on Foreign Relations about U.S.-China's business relationship after President Biden met with China's leader. Partly sunny skies today, temperatures in the 60s, a few clouds tonight with lows in the 50s, rain tomorrow with highs in the 50s. 45 degrees right now in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com In business news, student dining workers at Smith College are unionizing. As Nirvani Williams reports, they're demanding better wages and better treatment from college administrators. The union announcement follows tensions last year during Smith's contract negotiations with the union representing the college's full-time dining and housekeeping employees, as well as discussions of substandard working conditions among student dining workers. Charlotte Kazmarak is a member of the Student Organizing Committee. We think that we deserve to be paid more, and we know that Smith can pay us more. Mm -hmm. Another element of why we're unionizing is because of the working conditions and the safety precautions that should be in place because people aren't trained correctly. Kazmarak says the student organizers plan to present authorization cards and request voluntary union recognition from Smith College at a rally on Chapin Lawn on Friday. The college did not respond to a request for comment. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. A new AMC movie theater is open next to North Station. The 13-screen theater on Causeway Street takes over the space formerly occupied by Arclight Cinemas. That theater shut down just months after opening because of the pandemic. The Boston Globe reports this is the first AMC location to open in Boston since 2017. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Earlier this week, you heard the Guatemalan president tell NPR he was facing a coup by lawfare. Now, that prediction has come to pass. Prosecutors in Guatemala say they intend to bring charges against President-elect Bernardo Arevalo. And yesterday, police arrested some of his allies. Arevalo called the charges spurious. We can no longer tolerate this political persecution because if they win, Guatemala loses. NPR's Eder Peralta has been following this story. He joins us now from Mexico City. Eder, what happened yesterday? So look, beginning in the early morning, police surrounded the homes of some of Bernardo Arevalo's allies. And, you know, Arevalo was brought to power by young people. And we're talking literally just graduated from college young. And some of them were arrested yesterday. They were charged in relation to a protest, the takeover of Guatemala's public university. In one case, we saw one young activist in tears and in handcuffs. And as she was taken to a military prison, her mom hugged her, she gave her a blessing, and she told her, quote, you're good and God knows it, and the good people always triumph. Um, But later in the afternoon, prosecutors turned their gaze to the big guy. They announced that they were going 
going to seek charges against the president-elect over that same protest. They showed some tweets from Bernardo Arevalo uh, in which he congratulated the students for standing up to what uh, they say is a corrupt university leader. Prosecutors now say they will ask a court to strip the president and his vice president-elect of their immunity uh, so they can proceed with charges. All right. So the charges you just described, how, Mm -hmm. how real are they? Are they real? Well, look, when I spoke to uh, the president-elect earlier this week, he warned uh, that this is what would happen, that the government would make up a case against him. One legal scholar I spoke to said that all of these actions were, quote, outside every reasonable margin of legality. And the United States is taking a similar stance. The State Department called the moves against Bernardo Arevalo, quote, brazen efforts to undermine Guatemala's peaceful transition of power. In some context, eh? ever since Arevalo won the elections, the Guatemalan government has tried a lot of legal trickery. They've alleged electoral fraud, they've suspended Arevalo's party, they've raided his offices, and even after the election results were certified, they raided the Electoral Commission's office. Nothing has really stuck. Instead, thousands of people across the country have come out to protest, and the government is now trying something new. They're looking at the president-elect's tweets. All right, so what happens now? Look, last night I I spoke to Jordan Rodas. He's one of the president-elect's allies, and he would have been thrown in jail yesterday, but he was outside of the country. Um, He says that the government right now is acting like a wounded beast. They're afraid that if Arevalo takes power, they will be prosecuted for corruption, so they will do anything to stay in power, he says. I asked him if there's anything that could be done to stop the government, and he said the U.S. and the European Union have to coordinate their sanctions against the people leading this effort. He says the current sanctions aren't working because, for example, some of the people sanctioned by the U.S. can still fly to Europe. So he's calling for more severe, coordinated sanctions. That's NPR's Eder Peralta joining us from Mexico City. Thanks a lot. Thank you, A. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's Friday. That means StoryCorps is coming up in about a half hour. On the segment today, a mother and son who first came to StoryCorps 15 years ago return. And with the mom's health declining, it could be their last interview. It's 11 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities, starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at SteppingStone.org. There's a growing schism among Democratic voters when it comes to the U.S. response to the Israel-Hamas war, especially among young voters. We hear from millennials and Gen Zers on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Israel's military says it's recovered the bodies of two 
of the more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas gunmen last month. President Biden has signed a temporary spending bill averting a government shutdown for now. And music producer and performer Sean Diddy Combs is denying allegations of rape and abuse that were brought on by his ex, the R&B singer Cassie. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Partly sunny skies today, highs in the 60s, rain likely tomorrow with temperatures in the 50s. 45 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Voters in Argentina are facing one of the most consequential presidential elections this Sunday in recent memory. They're also facing a difficult choice. The race is between the current minister overseeing Argentina's disastrous economy, where inflation now tops 140%, or a political newcomer, a far-right libertarian economist and television pundit. Here's NPR's Kerry Kahn. Javier Millet only became a politician two years ago when he won a seat in Congress for his new Freedom Advances Party. Before that, he was the chief economist at one of Argentina's largest companies, a soccer goalie, a member of a Rolling Stones cover band, and a tantric sex expert. In this live TV performance, his girlfriend at the time sings about his prowess while Millet awkwardly dances off-tempo by her side. He also dresses up as his fictional creation, General Ancap. Sporting a cape and black mask and holding a golden spear, Millet explains in the social media post that his superhero comes from Lieberland, located between Croatia and Serbia, where residents live free of taxes. Much of his fame, however, comes from his signature mop of unkempt hair, long sideburns, and sharp tongue, which he prolifically uses to espouse ultra-conservative libertarian ideals on TV and radio. Millet fue un gran difusor de esta ideología. Millet was a great messenger of the ideology, says Carlos Maslaton, a conservative financial influencer who often invited Millet on his morning drive radio show. The two have since parted company. Hablaba por los medios, cada vez lo llamaban más medios, genera rating. Maslatón says more media outlets would have him on as his antics generated great ratings, like the time Millet smashed a piñata in the shape of Argentina's central bank. He often sports a chainsaw at rallies, which he says he'll use to slash state spending and vows to ditch the peso for the U.S. dollar. Millet's combative temperament comes up a lot on the campaign trail and during last Sunday's presidential debate as he sparred with the ruling party's candidate, Sergio Massa. The debate is very long. Don't get so aggressive so early, Massa scolded Millet. Massa, a veteran politician and current economy minister, has managed to distance himself from the unpopular president and the country's dismal finances. He's also run a skillful campaign warning Argentines just what they have to lose at the end of Millet's famous chainsaw, like in this ad flooding social media. (laughs) 
The cartoon shows the chainsaw destroying free public education, healthcare, and other generous government subsidies. University of Buenos Aires political science professor Marcos Novaro says the fear campaign is working. Toda esa campaña lo que generó fue mucho más miedo que bronca. Novaro says it's Millet's erratic style and radical politics that is alienating the very voters who should be flocking to him in protest over the government's poor handling of the economy. Recent comments by the candidate don't help him either, like his derisive digs at Argentine native Pope Francis, who Millet called a filthy leftist and supporter of murderous communists. His outsider status and bellicose behavior has drawn comparisons to Donald Trump and Brazil's former far-right leader, Jair Bolsonaro. No lo sé. That may have lost him the vote of one of Argentina's richest men, Eduardo Ernequian, Millet's former employer, who told me he's still not sure who he'll vote for come Sunday, although he did say Millet was a good worker. Pollsters say the race is tight and too close to call. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Buenos Aires. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas rages on, those with loved ones and friends affected by the fighting or who are just concerned members of the diaspora can often do little more than watch the events unfold. But the owners of a Palestinian restaurant in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. are doing what they can. NPR's Nina Kravinsky reports from a restaurant where people eat in support of Gaza. Bawadi Palestinian restaurant in Falls Church, Virginia, is packed on a recent Monday evening. There are over 100 people here. The line is out the door. We have chicken shawarma. We have uh, lamb kudra. That's Sarah McKee. She and her husband Khalid own this restaurant. The buffet table is piled with hummus, baba ganoush. Three, four kinds of sweet. I cannot just remember all of them. (laughs) But they all taste good. Tonight, the restaurant is hosting a fundraiser. Half the proceeds will go to the United Nations Relief Agency. Originally, I was born in Gaza. Khalid came to the U.S. 26 years ago. He has a Ph.D. in engineering, but decided to open this restaurant to celebrate his culture. We created this little little Palestine restaurant just for people to come. I had many customers, they come and say, I don't have to go back. I can come to Bawadi and I enjoy it. But lately, his mind has been back at home. Khalid's niece and most of her family were recently killed in an airstrike, launched by Israel as they continue to root out Hamas militants following that group's October 7th attacks. My niece has no affiliation with any like militants or any, any of that. My whole family is in Gaza, and if I lose them, I'll be without a family. So I, uh, that's why I'm very imminent. We need a ceasefire. Their cause appears to have support. First-time diner Sarah Klein says she saw the fundraiser on social media. I want to show support for people that are losing homes, losing families out of this conflict. 25-year-old Aliyah Halim came with her dad. His mother was a Palestinian refugee who was forced from her home during the creation of Israel in 1948. She's impressed that the McKees continue to push through. If he can wake up and come to his restaurant and know that there's a full house waiting for him of people who support him and are there for him, then we're happy to be those people. Khalid McKee says business has picked up since the war started. Our support is from everyone, like different background, different religions, uh, all Jews, Christian, Muslims. Nina Pravinsky, NPR News, Falls Church, Virginia. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash gradprograms. Education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Communication networks in Gaza were down today as the UN warns the population is at risk of starvation. It's Friday, November 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, United Auto Workers at General Motors ratify a tentative contract deal, but some members are concerned. Even at the end of this contract, we're still not going to be where we would have been had we never lost everything we lost years ago. Also this hour, more long-term facilities for children with behavioral issues are closing while other programs shift their priorities. We are seeing a lot of long-term facilities that are moving to what they call the short-term intensive outpatient. And tomorrow marks two decades since Massachusetts became the first state to allow same-sex couples to marry. We'll talk with one of the women behind the case. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the Israeli military is going to continue fighting Hamas in Gaza. In an exclusive interview with NPR's Morning Edition, Netanyahu says Israel is going to root out Hamas as a ruling entity. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. And right now, the only force that is able to, uh, to secure that is Israel. So for the foreseeable future, Israeli overall military responsibility. But there also has to be a civilian government there. But Netanyahu would not say who he thinks should run the civilian government for the Palestinian enclave. The Israeli prime minister also says Israeli troops remain in the largest hospital in Gaza, He says the Israeli military has found a lot of Hamas weapons, a lot of ammunition, and bombs at Al-Shifa Hospital. The situation remains dire in Gaza. Palestinian health authorities say Israeli attacks have killed more than 11,000 people. The U.N. says some 2,700 people, including 1,500 children, remain missing. They're believed to be buried under the rubble of buildings destroyed in Israeli airstrikes. All telecommunications are down in Gaza because Israel has blocked nearly all fuel from entering the enclave. President Biden wraps up his trip to San Francisco today with a meeting with Mexico's president. NPR's Tamara Keith has more. Biden is set to sit down with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. It's the last big sit-down on the president's schedule during his time in San Francisco. Yesterday, he held a trilateral meeting with the leaders of Japan and South Korea. That alliance, as well as economic development announcements with Indo-Pacific nations, are all part of the Biden administration's effort to counter China's influence. Tamara Keith, NPR News, San Francisco. 
Moscow. The United Auto Workers have voted in favor of new contracts with Detroit automakers. About 55 percent of members at GM have backed the deal. NPR's Camilla Dominowski reports UAW members at Ford and Stellantis are on track to win by larger margins. The union's president, John Fain, told members he thought these deals with the big three were as good as he could get, with raises of at least 25 percent, cost of living increases, and boosts to retirement contributions. The question was whether it was enough for union members. And that was a real question. Some big plants voted against the contracts, with members arguing the union could get even more, like winning back health care for retirees or more time off. But ultimately, it appears members are voting to lock in these gains, which means companies can finalize their production plans and the union can forge ahead with its plan to try to expand into non-union plants. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA says it needs almost $25 billion to make repairs across the system, and that does not include money for expansion. Jillian Linnell, head of capital strategy for the T, told the agency's board yesterday that not all the repairs have to be done immediately. The decisions around which projects are funded still lives in the annual capital investment program process which is where we are able to allocate all of our available funds to capital projects. This exercise is mostly intended to be a temperature check that helps us understand how we are doing and can support our decision-making processes. The new repair estimate is more than twice as much as the previous assessment in 2019. Officials say those increases are because of inflation and the aging infrastructure. National Grid is asking the state for permission to implement a new discount rate program for low-income residents. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, the utility says the new program could help make electricity more affordable for the most financially challenged customers. Currently, National Grid customers who make up to 60 percent of the state median income can get roughly a third of their total monthly electric bill knocked off. But Karsten Barde, director of policy for National Grid, says that some very low-income residents still qualify as energy burdened. That means they spend more than 6% of their income on energy bills. We have energy burdens that rise to 20% and higher for customers who are really struggling with, uh, with their bills. The company is asking the state for permission to implement a tiered discount rate, up to 55% off bills. Barde says a couple other states, including New Hampshire, have a similar rate structure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Incoming Boston City Councilor Enrique Pepin will need to pay a $5,400 fine. State regulators say Pepin broke campaign finance laws when he promoted his campaign kickoff while he was still a city employee. He calls the incident a lapse in judgment. Pepin won the election earlier this month in District 5, which covers Roslindale, Mattapan, and Hyde Park. An Attleboro family is suing Harvard, claiming the remains of one of its relatives were sold for profit. The school the, uh, that follows the school's former morgue manager found to be selling donors' body parts. The suit alleges that the medical school was negligent. Three other families filed a similar suit in June. Harvard tells the Boston Globe it does not comment on ongoing litigation. Officers with the MBTA's Transit Police Department are getting a pay raise. Yesterday, the T's board of directors approved a new four-year 
contract for the officers. It gives them an 18 percent pay raise over the life of their contract. The deal also comes with retention bonuses. Officials say the deal could encourage officers to stay with the department. It's seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Experience the magic of night lights. Enchanting landscapes and thousands of lights await. Tickets at nebg.org. The Celtics' week-long road trip takes them to Toronto for a game against the Raptors tonight, and it should be partly sunny today. Highs in the 60s, clouds tonight with lows in the 50s, rain tomorrow, maybe a wintry mix in the morning. Temperatures in the 50s, we should see sunshine on Sunday. 46 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Chinese President Xi Jinping's appearance at this week's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation meeting in San Francisco attracted executives from Apple, Boeing, Pfizer, and Nike, among other major U.S. firms. The guest list alone suggested that the tensions in U.S.-China relations have not soured American companies on doing business there. And while China is still the world's second largest economy, growth there is slowing down. So did she's trip to San Francisco suggest that the two countries are ready to strengthen their business ties? We called Songyang Zoe Lu to talk about that. She is a fellow in China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's written about the Chinese economy. Good morning. Good morning. So Zoe, what should we take from Xi's appearance at APAC from an economic standpoint? You know, economically, when Xi Jinping came into this meeting, the Chinese economic situation and growth momentum is in a significantly weaker uh, position compared with a year ago and is in a weaker position compared with that of the United States. So from that perspective, especially the guest list, it shows that um, he perhaps recognized the cost of a um, deteriorating U.S.-China relationship on China's growth. So China's economy never quite bounced back from COVID. Is it fair to say that the country needs American investment more urgently now? I would say so. And uh, remember this, the rise of the Chinese economic growth over the past 20 and 30 decades. Yes, you know, we remember the story of um, double digital growth, but a lot of these double digital growth come with confidence and especially confidence of American companies in the Chinese market and coming with America's investment in the capital. There is also the expertise and the connections. So from that perspective, right now at this moment, when the Chinese economic growth need international confidence as well as domestic confidence. Uh, it is fair to say that China needs America's uh, capital and investment. I wanted to ask you about that growth slowdown. The U.S. has imposed tough trade restrictions on China for national security reasons, according to the Commerce Department. Did those restrictions contribute to China's growth slowdown, or has that been driven more by Xi's policies? Uh, that's an excellent question. I would say that so my framework of understanding China's economic slowdown is through the length of four Ds, mm-hmm. uh, including debt, demand, demographics, 
And then the final, the final one would be decoupling or de-risking. So yes, uh, the export controls, investment screening, or a lot of these things are happening in the sphere of de-risking, uh, certainly contributed to the Chinese economic uh, lack of recovering momentum, but fundamentally a lot of the problems are deeper in the Chinese economic growth model. Hmm, thanks. So so before we let you go, you know, the U.S. is entering an election season. We can expect to hear a lot of anti-China rhetoric. Candidates on both sides are talking about being tough on China. Do you think or how do you think that could affect the two countries' relationship going forward? Uh, you know, uh, election year, especially the the politics on uh, the, the narratives on China, has has always not necessarily been helpful for the grand scheme of uh, of narratives on U.S.-China relationship. But I think you know Chinese uh, politicians navigated through se- several cycles of U.S. elections, so I don't necessarily think this is going to be significantly deteriorating the U.S.-China relationship. They've dealt with this before. Hmm. That's Songming Zoe Liu of the Council on Foreign relations. Zoe, thanks so much for your insights. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thousands of Ukrainian children have been deported to Russia since the war in Ukraine began nearly two years ago. A new report now says Russia's ally and neighbor Belarus is participating in these operations. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. is vowing to hold to account anyone involved. Yale researcher Nathaniel Raymond says he's documented what he calls an industrial-scale pipeline of child deportation from parts of Ukraine now occupied by Russia. This was concerted, it was intentional, and it involved both Russia and Belarus working together every step of the way. He's the executive director of the Yale School of Public Health's Humanitarian Research Lab, which gets funding from the State Department. Using open sources, the group found that 2,442 children between the ages of 6 and 17 have been taken to Belarus since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began more than a year and a half ago. The big mystery, Michelle, in this investigation is where are those 2,442 kids now? The Lukashenko regime claims they've returned to Ukraine, and we have not been able to independently verify that. Raymond says Alexander Lukashenko's government in Belarus and Vladimir Putin's in Russia should comply with the Geneva Conventions and register the children with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Some of the children were disabled and particularly vulnerable, he says, and about a quarter of them went through some kind of military training and indoctrination. The organizations involved here are really startling, including two motorcycle clubs, one called the Night Valkyries and the other the Night Wolves, and also the involvement of a senior official of the Belarusian Red Cross Society and also a swim club called the Dolphins. The report singles out some individuals who could land on U.S. sanctions lists. One top State Department official describes the child abductions as a, quote, hideous crime and says the U.S. will make sure anyone involved faces justice. The Yale researcher has been sharing his findings with the International Criminal Court. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
Here in the U.S., there are very few places to send young children with severe behavioral health issues. In fact, there are only five long-term residential treatment programs in the country for kids under nine years old. Now, one of them, Intermountain Residential in Montana, is at risk of closing. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports on what a closure could mean for families. And let me note here, this story briefly mentions suicide. Connie MacDonald works for the U.S. State Department and is based in Saudi Arabia. It was a dream job for her, and she loves living abroad with her two sons. But earlier this year, MacDonald's eight-year-old son started to become aggressive. He was diagnosed with emotional dysregulation. He was hurting me. You know, he threatened to kill his brother. One of the last straws was at school. They had four people holding him down at school for almost an hour, trying to calm him down. The American school in Jeddah said her son couldn't come back. His behavior was so severe, she started to look for residential treatment back in the States. She found Intermountain Residential in Helena, Montana. Children in the program learn to build healthy relationships through intense behavioral therapy. Parents say the treatment works, but it requires an 18-month stay. McDonald says it was terrifying, leaving her kid a world away. Part of me knows that it's what's best for him, and if I want him to have a decent chance at having a good, normal life, this is what I have to do. Those tears gave way to hope, as her son's violent outbursts have nearly gone away. Now when we have our weekly calls, it's like talking to your child again. It's wonderful. Some kids at Intermountain have had multiple suicide attempts or emotional disorders that can cause them to be violent. Others struggle to control themselves because of past trauma like abuse, sometimes in the foster care system. Such deep-rooted issues can't be addressed by medications, outpatient therapy, or short-term stays of one or even three months. Megan Bryce manages the residential program for kids at Intermountain. What has happened for them prior to coming has wired their brain towards something that keeps them more defended in nature and scared of adult care or adult control. She says it can take months before kids feel safe enough for treatment to be effective. But in September, Intermountain announced it would close down in the next few weeks because of chronic staffing shortages. Parents and some staffers protested and even held a rally outside the facility. Intermountain then said it would try to keep going by treating only eight children at a time. But clinic leaders warned that they still might have to shut down or change how they operate. The loss of another long-term option worries Megan Stokes. She's the executive director of the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. We are seeing a lot of long-term facilities that are moving to what they call the short-term intensive outpatient. And yeah, you're able to get insurance money easier. Programs lasting 30 to 90 days are cheaper. Insurance companies will pay for them more quickly. Over the course of a year, they treat more patients than long-term residential facilities. That makes them more lucrative to run. But short-term treatment isn't likely to work for the type of kids who go to Intermountain. If that kid bombs out of that short-term stay, now you're labeled as treatment-resistant. When that kid wasn't treatment-resistant, it was in the wrong place for them. And that means other short-term programs can reject them. Connie McDonald's son was supposed to complete 14 more months of treatment with Intermountain. 
she can't gamble on whether Intermountain will stay open. So she's getting ready to fly back from the U.S. consulate in Jeddah. I'll pick up my son and take him to my family's place in South Carolina until I can find another place for him. So far, she hasn't found another program that's willing to take her son or able to treat his condition. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, former President Trump recently referred to his political opponents in language that's raising questions about authoritarianism in the U.S. We'll take a look at some of his comments. It's 20 minutes past 8. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And the ICA, innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize Exhibition, on view now. ICABoston.org and Innuendo and Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. I'm Robin Young. Larry was an asylum seeker from Venezuela. Joe worked with asylum seekers. Now they're Larry and Joe, bridging divides with what they call Latin grass, traditional Venezuelan rhythms, and Appalachian bluegrass. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies in our forecast today. Highs in the 60s. Tonight a few clouds. Lows in the 50s. Rain tomorrow. But temperatures getting into the 50s later in the day and sunshine on Sunday. Highs again in the 50s. 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. How do garlic, ginger, and cayenne sound for Thanksgiving next week? NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg says actor and cookbook writer Matur Joffrey wasn't thinking about Thanksgiving when she came up with a delicious cranberry recipe. Matur Joffrey, tell the story about how you came to invent this recipe. 
Well, I think I was looking for a can of tomatoes. And by mistake, I opened a can of cranberries. And I said, what the heck am I going to do with cranberries now? And I thought I'll make a chutney, not with tomatoes, but I'll make it with cranberries. And I tried it out and it was perfect. You opened a cupboard or two to see what you had at hand in order to put all this together. Right. I made it the way I used to make my tomato chutney with garlic and ginger and all kinds of other ingredients that I always put into a chutney. What is a chutney? You know, in India, when you lick your lips, you smack them. That's the sound of snapping your lips. A chatpat, that's what we call it. And when something is really delicious and spicy and exciting to the tongue, we call it chatpati. This recipe could not be simpler. You've got garlic and ginger, cider, vinegar, cayenne, black pepper, and maybe the whole thing cooks for 10 minutes. It cooks until it becomes thicker and becomes a chutney. And Madhur Jaffrey, here comes the big reveal. I like your recipe better than the one that I have talked about on the radio for the last 104 years. It's Mama <laughs> Stamberg's Cranberry Relish. And it's very odd. It's got, it's got onions, sour cream, sugar, horseradish. Are you familiar with this recipe? I am not, but I know it from having you tell me about it. Well, what do you think about it? Is it something you would try yourself? I might. I'm not a great one for sour cream. I think I wasn't brought up in the sour cream culture. I was brought up in the yogurt culture. Right. But what about the horseradish? I wasn't brought up in that culture either. But though I love horseradish, I love it in a Bloody Mary, but perhaps not in my chutney. I have to say that Mama Stamberg's is pretty controversial. The listeners either hate it or they love it. And I think it's the color because, you know, you're mixing the whiteness of the sour cream with the wonderful vivid red of the cranberries. And on the air, I say it's the color of Pepto-Bismol. Although this year, I think I have to say it's the color of Barbie pink, but with more oomph to it, you know? (laughs) Well, Madhu Jaffrey, thank you so much for inventing my favorite cranberry chutney recipe. You have a book just out. It's a new book, but it's an old book. It's called An Invitation to Indian Cookery, and it first came out in 1973, and so they brought it out once again, and it's as new as ever. That's wonderful. Well, congratulations, and a very happy Thanksgiving to you and everybody out there who is interested in fine food. That's NPR's Susan Stamberg spreading the thanks and the giving. Time now for StoryCorps. Today, a final interview between a mother and son. Jackie and Scott Miller first came to StoryCorps in 2008, and Jackie revealed a secret. When I was 17, I got pregnant, and I gave this baby up for adoption and said at that time that I will adopt a child when I'm able to take care of a child. Wow. I just wasn't ready for that. I'm sure. I worry that you'll never know how scary it is for me sometimes to imagine life without you. That's something I can't make better for you. And I don't doubt it'll be tough, but you'll be okay. 
Jackie is now 88 and her health is declining. Realizing his mom could be nearing the end of her life, Scott wanted to record one more conversation. I cannot believe 15 years have passed. I don't have any more revelations to unleash on you. (laughs) And now I have an old person's voice. It cracks, but I still don't think of myself as old. I mean, when I find myself, oh gosh, flirting, I realize a guy would have to be nuts to flirt back, but that doesn't keep me from doing it. The last time the guy was giving me my flu shot, he was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. (laughs) But my world is really getting smaller. Words don't come that easily to me now. It's really scary. The other day, I couldn't remember my cell phone number. I recognize this is part of getting not older, but old. You know, in our first interview, I had said, uh, it scares me imagining life without you. And it doesn't so much scare me anymore, but it makes me uneasy imagining a world without you in it. You know, when your parents are both gone, you're kind of nobody's son. So when I think about what I'm going to be holding on to when you're gone... It feels so simple, but our conversations and your voice. One of the things every parent wants to know is just, how happy are you with your life? I'm very happy about my life. I just would like to emphasize, and I want you to hear how you gave my life, give my life such meaning. I will miss having a friend who is unconditionally in love with you. Mm -hmm. There's no other relationship that's the same as that. You can have great friends or loved ones, but it's not the same. Jackie Miller with her son Scott for StoryCorps in Tarrytown, New York. Their interview will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. And today's top stories are next. And coming up at 845 here on WBUR's Morning Edition, tomorrow marks two decades since Massachusetts became the first state to allow same-sex couples to marry. We'll talk with one of the women behind that case. After seeing news alerts all day, it can be hard sometimes to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app, and we'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener U, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com. And Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical that explores life's unexpected curves. Starts December 6th. amrep.org. And Road Scholar. Creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Aid agencies in Gaza say they're having to halt deliveries of humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians because of a lack of fuel amid the war between Israel and Hamas. We should never have gotten to where we are right now, where we're almost begging for fuel. Absolutely unacceptable. That's Juliet Tuma with the U.N.'s Relief Agency for Palestinians speaking to the BBC. President Biden has signed a temporary spending bill passed by Congress this week that averts a partial shutdown of the federal government. The measure funds some government agencies through January 19th and others through February 2nd. President Biden is scheduled to meet with Mexico's president today in California. Biden and Andres Manuel López Obrador are in San Francisco for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Biden and López Obrador are expected to discuss migration at the U.S.-Mexico border as well as the illegal trafficking of fentanyl. At a dinner there last night, Biden toasted APEC leaders for reaching agreements on clean energy and supply chain security, among others. We have to never forget that we can change and bend the arc of history for the better if we make up our mind to do it. Earlier this week, Biden met with China's President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of that summit. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The U.S. Department of Education is investigating allegations of anti-Semitism at Wellesley College. The investigation is part of a larger probe involving six other schools with allegations involving both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Earlier this week, two Jewish groups called on the Education Department to open a civil rights investigation at Wellesley. That was after student staff members at a residence hall were accused of declaring there should be, quote, no support for Zionism at the college. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Her call comes after about 100 protesters stopped traffic on the Boston University Bridge yesterday, urging Warren to push for a ceasefire. It's not clear if she was influenced by that demonstration. Congressman Jim McGovern and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley called for a ceasefire earlier this week. State officials are promising to take steps to expand access to maternal health care. That's in response to a pair of reports commissioned by Governor Healy. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey says those reviews came after the controversial closing of a hospital birthing unit in Lemonster. The reviews found Massachusetts does not have any maternity care deserts or areas that lack any services, but the state has work to do, says Dr. Robbie Goldstein, Commissioner of Public Health. We are a state with a lot of great healthcare resources. But we are a state that wants to and will hold ourselves accountable to a much higher level. We don't want to just meet a national standard. We want to make sure that everyone in Massachusetts has access to high quality care. Goldstein says his department will work to increase access to doulas and nurse midwives and make it easier for birthing centers to open in the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. People incarcerated in Massachusetts prisons and jails will soon be able to make free phone calls. The No Cost Calls Coalition says Governor Healy signed legislation into law yesterday that makes those calls free. The plan makes Massachusetts the first state to allow prisoners to make free calls from county jails as well as prisons. The rule will go into effect at the start of next month. It's 834. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. 
Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics will try to make it five wins in a row tonight when they visit the Toronto Raptors. And it should be partly sunny today. Highs getting into the 60s. Some rain tomorrow with temperatures in the 50s, but sunshine on Sunday and highs in the 50s. 49 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. All right, this week there was another big win for the leaders of the United Auto Workers. It wasn't another presidential visit or a concession from an automaker. It was a yes vote from their own members at General Motors approving the contract their union had negotiated. That's no small thing. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us now to explain. Uh, Camila, so what's the significance of this vote? Right. So the UAW had embarked on this ambitious and historic strike this fall, and then tentative deals with all of the big three automakers brought those strikes to an end. The union had emphasized that those were historic contracts, which is true by any measure. But what we didn't know until this vote happened was whether that was actually going to be enough for workers, for members. And that was a an open question because workers can and sometimes do reject the deals that their leaders of their union negotiate. And in fact, in this vote, some very big GM plants voted no by wide margins. And for a minute, it looked like the GM contract might not pass. But overall, about 55% of GM UAW members were in favor. Ford and Stellantis still counting votes, but it looks likely that they're going to approve it by even wider margins. Since it looked for a minute like it might not pass. Why was there so much opposition? In a nutshell, many workers thought the union could get even more. Danya Ferdinandson builds transmissions for GM in Toledo, and she was a no vote. She says this contract does have really big wins, but that's after years of even bigger losses. It's just clawing back what we've lost. It's not really technically a gain. Even at the end of this contract, we're still not going to be where we would have been had we never lost everything that we lost years ago. So it's a hard thing to swallow. And those things that the union lost, that includes benefits like retiree health care. You know, this kind of work is really hard on the body. Workers used to be able to keep their spectacular health insurance after retirement. Not anymore. The union did not get that back, nor did they bring back pensions for all workers. All right, but at the end of the day, I mean, the majority of workers seem to like this contract, so what do they like about it? Well, it includes significant wage gains, at least 25% over four years, and some workers who are paid less today will see their wages more than double. There are cost of living increases on top of the raises tied to inflation, a big boost in retirement contributions, a couple things that are really focused on the future, too. One's the right to strike over plant closures. That's meant to be a tool to help fight future job losses. And the union made some progress toward unionizing 
building battery plants. That's important as the auto industry makes this switch towards electric vehicles. The UAW wants to make sure that the jobs of the future building batteries are also unionized. All right, so it sounds like we're on the verge here. So what's next? Yeah, so Ford and Stellantis, like I said, a few votes still out there, but once they are all ratified, uh, the union members get their raises. The companies are going to have some certainty about their labor costs and they'll make decisions about production. That in turn is going to determine how this deal ultimately affects consumers in the wider economy. The union has its sights set on expanding foreign automakers in the South. Tesla gets stronger for the next contract and maybe win some of those more ambitious demands that they didn't get this time. And those non-union companies, Toyota, Hyundai, Honda, just now Subaru, they're giving raises to their workers to try to stave off those unionization efforts. All right, NPR's Camila Dominoski, thanks a lot. Thank you. In a recent campaign speech, Donald Trump used terms that echoed the language of Adolf Hitler. But that parallel is not the only reason to pay attention. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben has this analysis. Last weekend, Trump compared his political opponents to vermin. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. He praised Hungary's strongman leader. The head of Hungary, a very tough, strong guy, Viktor Orban. And he referred to himself as... I'm a very proud election denier. All of which has renewed the conversation over Trump as authoritarian. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history at NYU and author of the book Strongman. She defined authoritarianism. It's when the executive branch and the leader find ways to take away checks and balances so they have a degree of power that they don't have in a democracy. She points to a New York Times report that Trump is looking for potential appointees who will not stymie his attempts at greater executive power. Authoritarianism, in fact, has been found to be key to Trump's political success. In a 2016 study, belief in authoritarian ideas was the greatest predictor of support for Trump in that Republican primary. And even in America's heretofore stable democracy, authoritarianism is relatively popular. That study's author later found that around 4 in 10 Americans have authoritarian preferences. Robert Jones is the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute, or PRRI. What we have witnessed from Trump over the last few weeks is something new. Trump has clearly crossed into the domain of Nazi ideology. Jones also pointed to a recent interview with the far-right website The National Pulse, in which Trump made this statement about immigration. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, It's poisoning the blood of our country. The Trump campaign firmly denies any connection to Nazi rhetoric. In a statement, spokesman Stephen Chung told NPR, quote, Everything President Trump is saying is true. It's honestly despicable and racist for any news organization to make disgusting connections as they have done in the past few days. He added, There has been no bigger ally to Israel and the Jewish people than President Trump. Though Trump's language echoes language Hitler used, many people listening might not draw that connection. But Jones argues that's not the point. This language of rooting out vermin, the reason why authoritarian leaders use that is because it does dehumanize their political opponents. Dehumanization of political opponents are the bricks that pave the road to political violence. PRRI recently found that 23% of voters, including one-third of Republicans, agreed that, quote, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. 
That poll also found that 38% of Americans, including nearly half of Republicans, agree that the U.S. needs a leader who, quote, is willing to break some rules if that is what it takes to set things right. Jones sees this as a clear indication of authoritarian sentiment. Othering an entire group, whether it's immigrants or political opponents, is powerful for authoritarians, says Ben Giat. You need to get people to feel they have an existential threat facing them. And the more they feel uncertain and fearful, the more the strong man can appear and say, I alone can fix it. And that's something Americans have heard before. I alone can fix it. When Trump first accepted the Republican nomination in 2016. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report, where we'll talk about how Congress avoided a government shutdown by passing yet another stopgap funding bill. Without it, the federal government would have shut down at midnight tonight. Looks like it'll be partly sunny today. Highs in the 60s, some rain tomorrow with temperatures in the 50s, sunshine on Sunday, highs in the 50s. It is 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah. Three performances, November 24th through 26th. HandelandHyden.org. And Ocean State Job Lot. Partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. In business news, Framingham-based TJX is seeing increased profits. The owner of TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods says its third-quarter profit margin grew 12 percent compared to the previous year. TJX also opened 50 new stores between July and September. The FDA is warning dialysis patients that using certain syringes made by Waltham-based Fresenius Medical Care could cause serious injury or death. The agency issues a Class 1 recall on the nearly 12.5 million syringes this week. That's considered the most serious type of recall. FDA officials say leaks in the syringe can lead to the wrong dosage of medication, infection, or blood loss. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and MITSloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. 20 years ago tomorrow, Massachusetts became the first state in the nation to allow same-sex couples to marry. It was a groundbreaking moment that eventually led to a chain reaction around the country. Hillary Goodrich and her then-fiancé Julie Goodrich were lead plaintiffs in the case decided in 2003 by the Supreme Judicial Court. WBUR's Rupa Shinoi spoke with Hillary Hillary Goodrich about the anniversary. Can you take us back to this day 20 years ago? What was it like and and what was the atmosphere? Well, you know, it feels very much in some ways as things do now, which is both amazing and exciting and, and terrifying. The SJC announced every morning at 8 a.m. what 
cases would be released that day. So for months, all of us who were plaintiffs and other people had been checking the SJC website at eight in the morning. That morning on November 18th, there it was. It's a bit of a blur what happened after that. It's easy to forget that, uh, you know, the opposition to marriage equality in Massachusetts continued even after that 2003 decision. Then Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney called for a state constitutional amendment to define a marriage as between a man and woman. How long was it before you felt widely accepted as a married couple here? Oh, it was years, I think, even after marriage, because what happened after our case is that it also felt like the opposition accelerated in really somewhat insane ways. I mean, Mitt Romney called it a blow against the family. George Bush called for a constitutional amendment to you know, protect marriage in his State of the Union. And as today, we were used as political fodder which continues now, especially with young trans kids, with people of color, with immigrants. Politicians will use us for whatever end. And forgetting, as Mitt Romney did back then, we are your constituents. We are the people you are here to serve. How have you been reacting to some of the pushback we've seen in recent years when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights, like the book bans and the laws around the country restricting transgender rights? It feels insane to me. Sometimes I think it's the last gasp of dinosaurs, you know, who are madly trying to hold on to something that was horrible to begin with. And other times I get so much hope from young people, from all the different movements who have come together to understand how connected our situations are and to fight back. I do not believe that marriage equality will be reversed at all. And I believe that movements for justice will continue to go forward. Being a part of this case, being in some sense a face of gay marriage in Massachusetts and the nation, how has that impacted you? A lot of people will still say thank you. Even a group of young people who I had the pleasure of meeting with the other day, one of them burst into tears and said, I know what you did, and thank you so much. So that just makes my heart swell. That's incredible. And I'm very grateful, but always need to remind how many people were really behind us. Were there sacrifices to playing this role? Oh, huge, of course. They were all worth it. But I think that Julie and my relationship was one of the sacrifices. Ultimately, we didn't go into it thinking that, but it took a big toll. And of course it was going to. You say it was worth it. You've talked, though, about the pressure it's had on your family and how it did ultimately lead to your divorce, especially on an anniversary like this. How do you reflect on that? How do you make sense of the role it's played in your life? I weigh out the incredible positive and some of the negative and understand that any movement for justice like this is going to have both and is going to involve some heartbreak. Hillary Goodridge was one of the lead plaintiffs in the Massachusetts case that legalized gay marriage in the state. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rupa. 
That's WBUR's Rupa Shanoi talking with Hillary Goodrich. We'll have more on the 20th anniversary of same-sex marriage in Massachusetts coming up on Radio Boston at 11 o'clock this morning. And coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to go to the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the latest push for peace in Sudan, plus the small storm drain that caused a big problem at a Formula One race in Las Vegas. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. There's a growing schism among Democratic voters when it comes to the U.S. response to the Israel-Hamas war, especially among young voters. Joe Biden will never, ever, ever get my vote ever again. The far left doesn't support Israel, and I, I, I don't know if I can really associate with that party anymore. We hear from millennials and Gen Zers on both sides of the argument on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Biden has signed a new spending bill, which averts a government shutdown for now. United Auto Workers at General Motors have ratified a tentative contract deal, and three Republican presidential candidates meet in Iowa today for what organizers are calling a family discussion on politics. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th. LyricStage.com. Partly sunny skies today. Temperatures in the 60s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. With the government funded for now, there's more time to fight over government funding. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at Schwab.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Last night, President Biden signed a bill to temporarily avoid a government shutdown, which would have happened at midnight tonight. But this stopgap measure basically just pushed the real funding battle down the road, including over controversial items like the president's request for more aid to Israel and Ukraine. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more on that. President Biden asked Congress last month for about $105 billion in aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan and border security. Democrats want aid to Israel. Democrats want aid to Ukraine. Sarah Binder is a professor of political science at George Washington University. She says for Republicans opposed to more aid for Ukraine, the price for their votes is immigration reform. In fact, earlier this year, the House passed immigration legislation. It would have restarted construction on the border wall and made it more difficult for migrants to get asylum in the U.S., non-starters for Democrats. The House also passed a $14 billion aid package for Israel with no money for Ukraine. And now, Binder says... The ball's definitely in the Senate's court. 
A bipartisan group of senators is working on a compromise on immigration that would be included in a broader package of aid for Ukraine and Israel, which could be tacked onto a bigger bundle of spending bills. That could be in January. That could be in February. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he hopes, quote, we can come to a solution in the coming weeks. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Meanwhile, just outside of Gaza, the United Nations says trucks carrying fuel and food aid are stuck at the border with Egypt for a second day, due in part to a collapse in communications networks. The World Food Program said Palestinian civilians faced the imminent possibility of starvation. Checking numbers, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up. The, uh, with the Dow future up 122 points, four-tenths of a percent. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.445%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity knows. Learn more at affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. So each month we watch a documentary together for what we call Econ Extra Credit. And this month it's a feature film based on real history. Killers of the Flower Moon, actually out in theaters now. Members of the Native American Osage Nation were forced onto land that was agriculturally poor. Could not do a lot with it. Then it turned out there was a lot of oil there. The film tells the story from the 1920s of a reign of terror faced by the Osage people as white Americans tried to extract that oil wealth through exploitation, graft, and murder. At the center of this was a legal concept called guardianship. For more on that, we have got Allison Herrera. She's a senior reporter for the investigative journalism outfit APM Reports, which is owned by the same parent company as Marketplace. She covers indigenous affairs, and her work can also be heard on the podcast from Bloomberg called In Trust. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sabri. So there is this legal concept of guardianship. People might be familiar with this from the story Britney Spears after she fought to have her guardian removed a couple years ago. But this is basically somebody else being granted the authority to tell you how you can and cannot spend your money it has a long legal history, which we see in Killers of the Flower Moon. Can you explain what we see there? Yes. Guardianships stem from this racist, paternalistic policy that was put in place by the federal government in the early 20th century that basically deemed Native people incompetent to run their own affairs and manage their own money. You know, the policy was first implemented ultimately to protect Osages from being exploited by non-Indians, but it ended up not being that way. So in 1912, the United States government passed this law that said Osage citizens who were more than half-blood were deemed incompetent. Uh, you may remember a scene from the film Killers of the Flower Moon where Molly Burkhart has to go into the office and she has to read off her allotment number and say incompetent. And so that's basically the system that people operated under. What kind of legal landscape developed around this? 
So that's a really good question. And this goes back to Oklahoma statehood. There was an act that was put in place called the Oklahoma Enabling Act. And what this did was it's made a lot of provisions and laws for Oklahoma to enter into the union. And the act laid out that in matters of Indian affairs, that was to be left between the federal government because of the trust responsibility it has for tribal nations. But shortly after statehood in 1907, you had all of these businessmen, these land owners, cattlemen that lobbied really hard to give local courts and judges in eastern Oklahoma control over probates and wills and estates. And that allowed for you know, judges to appoint their friends and you know, family as guardians over these Osages. So even in death, the access to wealth was kind of diverted legally. Yes. I mean, I did some reporting about a woman named Lily Morell Burkhart. She was not related to Molly Burkhart or the Kyle sisters. But this was in 1967. After she passed away, her will went into this lengthy probate in Osage County. And her then-divorced husband, Byron Burkhart, was able to claim that he was her common-law husband through the courts. And then it was able to get a salary off of her estate. So, I mean, this isn't something that was just in the 1920s. This was even you know, later in the 60s and 70s. Allison Herrera is a senior reporter covering indigenous affairs for the investigative journalism outfit APM Reports. Allison, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sari, for having me on. You can follow along with Econ Extra Credit by subscribing to our free newsletter at marketplace.org slash newsletters. Next month's movie is the 1983 version of Trading Places. And the United Auto Workers have voted to approve a new contract with General Motors, making its workers the first to approve such an agreement. 54.7% of members voted in favor. The contract was more popular among union members at Ford and Stellantis. From APM, American Public Media. Should be partly sunny in greater Boston today with temperatures getting into the 60s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 50s. Tomorrow, rain and maybe a wintry mix in the morning. Temperatures eventually getting into the 50s and sunshine on Sunday with highs in the 50s. And it is 52 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.